Hi, my name is Niall Murphy. I'm running a small startup called Stanza Systems, and I am a coffee refusenik. And if you want to get me via caffeine, you have to do tea and milk and sugar. Hey, uh, I'm Todd. I run MLSRE for Google. Um, I drink coffee by the liter, and these days I drink it in this cup that my daughter destroyed in the back. Like, she slammed a door on it. Like, these are supposed to be indestructible. But anyway, I generally have between like one and a half and two liters of coffee a day. So, uh, and I drink it black because it's coffee. I drink coffee, not non-coffee. Like, the people who have coffee and non-coffee, that seems like an error to me. David Aponte, long time no see, man. Hello, hello. It How's everything like... going? I love the the beard. You're looking real good, real scruffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually in Greece right now, trying to Whoa. soak up the last rays of summer. How is it? Super hot over there. I'm curious. Yep, it is, and I am going to the beach every day. Still, it's brilliant. Nice. I'm not really looking forward to getting back to Germany because I feel like it's going to be a very extreme change from one yeah, climate yeah, to the yeah. next, but you know how it goes. Well, anyway, dude, we're st- yeah, yeah, go ahead. we had Niall Murphy and Todd Underwood on here. Both of these we fellas did. we interviewed before prior to this. Yep. So if you have not seen their first interviews, I highly recommend checking them out. We're going to leave the link to those in the description, but I mean, these guys are highly decorated. Like Todd is the head of ML infrastructure SRE at Google. That is huge. He's got you know, a big might have heard of that under- company. Yeah. <laughs> Niall also is the guy that wrote the book on being an SRE. So like, and yeah. he was at Google. Might have heard of that. He then went to Microsoft. He then became uh, a founder and he is starting this new startup that he's got right now. So it's really cool to see this. But the reason we got him back on here is because of their new book that they just came out with, which is Reliable Machine Learning. And we mentioned it a few times. We talk about this in the episode. We go through a few chapters. We ask them to comment on it. What were some of your takeaways? Yeah, I think first off, it was great that they wrote this book in the first place. I think, you know, in a space that's really new and and where lots of people entering into it, entering into it, have lots of questions. I feel like this book clarified a few things and answered some of those questions. Uh, Something in particular that I thought was really interesting was, you know, just their focus on the cultural side of things. And we have mentioned this number, a number of times in previous episodes, you know, but, but I think they really like they, you know, they actually put that into practice by writing, you know, chapters dedicated to some of these things. And they, they were thoughtfully, you know, put together, you know, introducing things that I, that I, in my opinion, weren't, you know, exactly obvious but we maybe have thought about, but again, just the value, there's a lot of value in putting it all in one place so that people can benefit from it. And so I, I just really, I, it, one takeaway that I had was it was great to have all of their experiences kind of documented or encoded into this one book. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm sure there's so many more things that are not there, uh, but it has a good gist of like what they think uh, this space is, is about and, and how to best manage it. Yeah. Can I tell you a little secret from, and this is just what I heard from Todd, but at the end of the episode that we had D Scully on, do you remember when we interviewed him back? I think it was like a little over a year ago now. Yeah. Wow. Time flies. (laughs) For those of you that do not know who D Scully is, you've 
probably read some of his work. He is one of the authors of these monumental papers uh, around MLOps, like the ML test score and the high interest credit card debt of machine learning. And so at the end of that, we asked him, hey, so you're going to write a book anytime soon? And he, <laughs> D. Scully was like, oh, hell no. I'm not doing it. We we should grab that clip and um, yeah. throw it in the description. <laughs> but basically, D was like, nope, nope, not doing that. No reason to do that at all. And he shot me down hard when I asked that question to so much so that I was like, ooh, like I shouldn't have asked him that. Uh, <laughs> I felt kind of like an idiot. Anyway, Todd watched that and then reached out to D because they both work at Google. And then Todd asked him if D wants to help them write this book and he said yes so d scully is one of the authors of the reliable machine learning book and uh, i like to think that i played a part in that it was (laughs) it's all because yeah yeah, i mean (laughs) you did help them get all together right you you you, but i think yeah like the fact that they like they have this rich network of people that they can reach out to to help them you know contribute to this book is is really cool um and and it's a place i feel really privileged to be you know in the same circle as some of these guys you know and and learning from them in person you know on a podcast which is this episode we we hear a lot of that it's just even their 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 tone their perspective towards things they're very calm and 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 have a good uh uh they don't take themselves too serious which i i think also is an important thing to think about you know because this is a complicated space and and when you're trying to learn about it you need it's nice when someone can put it in a way that's digestible it's friendly and uh yeah the, you, you just see that all throughout the book and definitely in this episode as well they're funny guys to be clear d scully and todd knew each other before uh <laughs> they todd reached out to him actually todd was the reason todd introduced me to d to get him on the podcast uh so the story the plot thickens as they say but the i really thickens. appreciated the <laughs> piece where you said, where you asked them about incident response and how complicated that can be when it comes to machine learning. So I encourage everyone to keep an eye out or an ear out for that piece. Cause like you said, they have so much experience in this field and the way that they're able to frame things is yeah. enlightening. That's yeah. it. Let's, yeah. we might as well jump into it for anyone yeah. that is listening. And if you are not already subscribed, Please, it would mean the world to us if you yep, just do it. subscribe to this podcast, video cast, and if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, leave us a review. That would be huge. If you're listening yeah, on YouTube, yep. throw a comment, and all of that goes a long way to get this podcast out to more people. So let's jump into it with Niall Murphy and Todd Underwood. Let's do it. So how am I supposed to follow that one, dude? <laughs> Todd, I mean, maybe we should just start with that Hegelian <laughs> reference that you did. I don't even know, man. I mean, no, here's what we'll start with. Here we go. Fellas, how does it feel to be back on the MLOps Community Podcast? We've missed you. I don't know if you've reciprocated those kind of feelings for us, but we definitely have missed you. Woo! Feels yeah. good. I think like uh, what I would say is that uh, our absence is not for lack of fondness for you. And further, I will say that if anybody, this is an open offer, if anybody ever hears me say the phrase, that book writes itself, you have permission to smack me with the nearest mackerel you can find. Because I will tell you, 
the book does not write itself. Someone writes the book. And it turns out in this case, it was us. So yeah, uh, I think uh, we have spent a huge chunk of the last year and a half working on this damn book. Yes. That's and fantastic. For anybody that doesn't know that book is reliable machine learning. We are going to leave a link to it in the comments. And that's one of the reasons we got you both here. I mean, it's been about a year since, I mean, a little over for you, Todd, uh, you came in at the end of 2020, I think. And so what have you been up to besides writing uh, books? You go, Niall. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, the, the past while in common with kind of most things out there in the world, past while has been pretty frantic, pretty fast moving. I now find myself the CEO of a stealth mode startup in the SRE and ML space called Stanza Systems, uh, which may, I think, actually be the first official announcement. But anyway, uh, and I'm doing that. And prior to that, I suppose uh, I homeschooled my eldest child through his entrance to university. Uh, those are more or less the, that's the story of the past while. That's a lot. Yeah. Very busy, very productive. Yes, I find I'm unable to recommend it generally as a thing you should do. But if you find yourself doing it, then uh, you have my sympathy. Yeah, and I have a, I think like, uh, you know, that Niall's putting together this, this company that's, uh, uh, you know, globally distributed company, um, and we all know, like trying to trying to figure out strategy and trying to figure out trying to get people on the same page uh, in a distributed fashion when they can't spend time together. It's really hard. Um, it's interesting that as you know, as people who live on computers, we do form lasting and strong relationships across computers. But I still find it baffling that people sort of assert willfully, nobody ever needs to see anyone. I'm like, that's just nonsense. Like we do better yeah. when we see each other. It doesn't mean we have to, it doesn't mean we can't work around it, but it means it's a lot more work. So, you know, I've sort of watched Niall doing that really effectively, but it's a lot more work. And, you know, similarly, I've been running uh, the machine learning SRE organization at Google. Um, you know, I would say now close to half of the people who work for me, I've never met. Because, you know, it's been wow. two and a half years and we haven't been traveling much. And uh, and that's just tough because you're just like, I don't actually know, you know, like I don't like it's harder to remember who people are. It's harder to like put that connection into their like, oh, you moved to this place under these difficult circumstances. But you're having this. Oh, you used to be in Seattle, but now you're in Zurich. I should probably know like where <laughs> you are in the world within like three or four time zones. Um so I think that's been tough and, and really trying to figure out, you know, in particular during pandemic, I think a lot of us were able to do the simple stuff, like do the next thing, do the next thing, do the next thing. But it's been it's been difficult to be ambitious and do big new things because to do that, you just have to believe oh. in the future. And so um, that's for me has been the struggle is getting people really if you believe in the future, then you can invest in the future and then you can do big stuff. But if you're constantly convinced that everything's about to fall apart, it's easier to just, you know, answer the email, go to the meeting, but not build the thing for 2025. What are we doing uh -huh. for 2025 today? Yeah. So that's that's been a struggle, I think. Any tips on running these different distributed teams? I mean, I've heard some people talk about how they like to do check-ins with the team via Slack in the morning and just ask what your goals are and what you plan to accomplish today. And then at the end of the day, when you check out, you can 
say what you actually got accomplished. Do you like that? Is that too micromanagerial? Uh, anything that you found that has helped particularly well? Yeah, so uh, we spend a lot of time in Slack um, and we have a couple of ex-slackers on, on staff, actually. I'm not sure if that's the plural noun, but you know what I mean. Uh, the I, I suppose there's, there's trade-offs to all of these things, right? If you're in a fully remote situation, you get to, I suppose, cast a very wide hiring net. If you're in a completely local situation, you get to kind of take advantage of uh, the intensity of feeling of being in the same room, etc. But from a tips point of view, uh, we definitely live in Slack and there is something that comes from that interactive, you know, XYZ is typing style feelings. That's great. But conversely, Slack is not very good for searchable material, retrievable material. So you need to pair that kind of tooling with a wiki or docs or some kind of information management strategy because you think that uttering something into electrons is the same as it being preserved for all time. And it turns out that's not the case. So that's one one tip I would have. I have uh, I had some teams that found one thing that worked, uh, which is there's a particular problem, which is bringing new people to a team. So now sort of describing the formation of a new team where everyone's new, and that's one set of challenges. The other challenge is bringing two or three new people into a team of six or eight people. And in that case, what we found is that especially less experienced or more or more junior employees, but anyone really coming into a team just has trouble figuring out, like, what are we doing? What's going on? What are the expectations? How do I do this? And so one of the strategies I saw, which is a really simple strategy, is you just get on, you just have the experienced people of the team one day per week for an hour work on a video conference. They just have a uh, they just have a window up. They're just working. No one has to come by. And in some cases, they cast their screen because they're like, "Hey, I'm doing this migration, or I'm trying to write this code, or I'm working on this design doc, or whatever the thing." Oh, that's doing. awesome. And in some cases, they're just working on the screen, and they're like, "If you got questions, show up." And what we found is that the junior folks didn't want to make an appointment. They didn't want to set up a 30-minute meeting to ask a question because they were embarrassed. But if they know that each of these four hours of the week, someone who knows what the heck is going on is going to be there, they might bop by and say like, oh, hey, how do you do this thing? Or where are these files? Or explain the source tree to me one more time because I don't get it. And that helps a lot. One follow-up question for that is, is um, I feel like a lot of teams or organizations will have one person that's like really skilled in this area and they rely, the organization relies on them to kind of, you know, take care of things, set the strategy and teach others. How do you prevent those type of people from getting burnt out? Because that sort of scenario where they're constantly available, I could see that for myself getting a little bit tiring. What do you do to balance that? So it's not, I mean, I, I love that idea. Let me just first say, I think that's really great because that does make people more available more accessible right and more likely for someone to ask a question maybe when they wouldn't do it through like a one-on-one -on -one meeting but how do you do that in such a way where they're not overwhelmed with like you know bombardment of questions and people wanting to see how they do things you know yeah i think um in our case i think one of the things you have to do is you have to reward you have to consciously identify this as a set of behaviors that you're requesting of your senior engineers or of your you know particular class of experienced employees and you have to reward it. So one of the things that I think a lot of organizations found in pandemic is they explicitly rewarded a set of things like productivity, like ship the code, fix the bugs, launch the products. And they did not explicitly reward mentoring 
like teaching, encouraging. And so what happened during pandemic is a bunch of the senior employees had an opportunity to figure out just how much more productive they were at the things they were being formally evaluated on at home and how much less productive they were at those things at work. But at work, they were much more productive on the set of things that the company said they cared about, but didn't actually evaluate or reward on. And so I think to some extent, this is a management problem. Like if senior management doesn't want to train up new employees, then they should not prioritize training up new employees. And they'll have to deal with the fact that like they have a high failure rate of new employees. I think that's a bad strategy, I should say, but it is a strategy. The other strategy is you say like, oh, mentoring is actually a part of your job and we're going to carve out 25 to 30% of everyone's job to do that. Maybe you trade those off a little bit. But to your point, uh, David, like I do think that some people are just bad at this. Like some people don't like, I don't like other people. I don't like to talk to them. I don't, I don't, I don't like to talk to you all. The truth comes out. So you don't want to push people against their interests. This is like interviewing to me. Like most companies need to interview. There are some people that are terrible at interviewing or hate it so much that it ruins their entire week. Every time they have an interview, you should probably find a way to not have those people interview for your company. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I think this is a night, I don't know if I don't want to jump too ahead into the book, but in the book, you do mention like this idea of process rewards and people. And I, th I found that really insightful uh, to consider rewarding people because you do need to keep people incentivized, right? So that they are not just doing the bare minimum, but will do a little bit more. And it's really hard to get people to do that when they feel like it's like, I don't know, you have to frame it in a certain way to encourage people to want to do that. So can we talk a little bit about how you guys thought about that for your book? Sure, I can start off, I can kick off if you want. Um, just, uh, I, I suppose I'd, I'd open by saying, uh, it's so strange that in the year of our Lord, 2022, we are saying it is a revolutionary management technique to reward people. Like in the first case, it, it, doesn't it seem relatively intuitive that if you want yes. to kind of inspire certain behavior in people that you might positively reward that? So uh, I, I refuse to regard that as a revolutionary technique. I can say that I think the subtlety in management has always been precisely what do you reward and the more kind of narrow and metric based you get about it, the more difficulty you often encounter because people find a way, people are very, you know, ingenious in many ways and they find all kinds of ways to make the metric go up. Uh, I think there's a relatively famous case of a a bank rewarding the number of new accounts being opened, you know, in an attempt to drive new business. Oh, yes, yes, we can definitely open lots of new accounts. That is true. Uh, so anyway, leaving aside questions of, of metrics, I think in some cases, maybe in many cases, introducing machine learning to an organization that hasn't really had this before or hasn't had it in a, a kind of a thorough way in anything other than individual experiments is like any other change project that you have in any other organization. People need to understand why they're doing it and they need to, in some sense, believe in it, I suppose, and uh, process and rewards and persuasion and all of that are, are a huge part of driving change in any organization. I think one of the things we emphasize in the book is precisely how, uh, for want of a better term, tentacle-like machine learning is, and the sinews of data find their way into everywhere in your organization, more or less. So it's a lot tougher 
to take the traditional kind of computer science or even uh, organizational approach of we will silo this into this thing and there'll be somebody in charge of it and we can just, just, end quote, give all of the, that thing to this particular group. And that seems to me to be just kind of less tractable in the ML case. All kinds of people need to know all kinds of things about how ML is done, what the goal is, how successful it's being, and the degree of kind of cross-communication, I, I think we argue, is is strongly increased. Uh, what do you think, Todd? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think that's that's an important point. Like, first, I want to say, like, David, like, I love that you asked this question because when we, so one of the things I really loved about the first SRE book that Niall did was the section that I think almost no one read, but was my favorite section, which is like, how do you manage these SRE teams? Like, there's a whole section on like, how do you run a production meeting? And I was like, to those of us who are SRE managers, I'm like, this is the goal. This is the hard one. This stuff matters. Like, how do you talk about outages? How do you like coordinate the activities of a team? But most people are like, show me the tech. How do I do this? Like, what is the thing I type into the, I'm like, well, the thing you're hacking is people, not computers. And so so I love that section. And so when we went to write this book on reliable ML, we were like, uh, we want to try to address organizational leaders who themselves are not into ML yet, but know they should be. They're like, they think this stuff is going to matter, or maybe they already know it matters, but they're not sure what to do about it. And already we get these questions semi-constantly, even from relatively technically sophisticated companies of how do I either introduce machine learning into my business, into my organization, or how do I harvest the energy that I've got? How do I harness the different teams that I already have in a sensible way? And so when we were to write those chapters, I seriously did think nobody's going to read this, but if they do, it's going to be great. And so I was really, it's exciting that you actually looked through those. Yeah. You mentioned that it's really good for managers, but I also think for individual contributors themselves to get a sense of like how to mature and grow. I think like myself, I don't really see myself being a manager, but as an individual contributor, I do want to think more maturely. And and part of that is is thinking broader. You mentioned in your book, I think it was about like staff engineers, so they should be very cross-functional, right? Or work across the org instead of just being so focused in their narrow domain. I, I, I'm curious from your experience, why why does that work well? Why does it work well to be, I guess, how how does that work well? Because it seems like kind of my earlier question of getting burnt out, being all over the place. I feel like they're related, but maybe in your experience, that's not the case. It just naturally works and there's no issues getting people to kind of collaborate across orgs. There absolutely is. Like, I think that there's an analogy in something. Uh, I'm not sure this is a perfect analogy, but an analogy in something Niall said about So when you go back, it's hard for us, but like when you go back in time to the introduction of information technology into enterprise, like, so we're, we're wandering through the fifties and sixties and people have big businesses and they're moving pieces of paper all over the place and they're sending memos and they have steno pools full of almost entirely women who type things and mail things up. Like this is how business runs and computers start to come in and no one's really sure what to do with them. And I think there's an interesting analogy here because they pick a few things that they're positive that computers work really well for and they have them do those things. But that's not where it matters. It matters, it turns out, everywhere, not somewhere, not in some places, but everywhere. And if you look at the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s as people are trying to decide like, Do we have technology divisions per business group? Do we have an IT organization 
Do like how do we think about and is technology a cost center or a profit center? Like and so like this is all ML is going to do the same thing. And I think the reason it's going to do the same thing is the data comes from everywhere. Like the data are already everywhere. Like if you do a thing that matters to your business, that thing you're doing produces data and those data could be used to make that part and other parts of your business better. So if you sell airline seats and you know what airline seats you sell and who you sell them to, that can make the catering division of your airline more efficient. But only if you use the data from the seats you sell to predict the meals you're supposed to be producing. But like you would have to share those between those business groups. And similarly for magazines and for car manufacturing and for, you know, serving ads on search pages or whatever the heck you're doing. So I think that's really where it comes about, David. Yeah, go ahead now. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I agree with what Todd said there, except the data is everywhere rather than the data are everywhere. But right. anyway, I, this. I thought the data <laughs> are plural. that is a plural word. And they bullied me in this book. We use data as a collective singular. And I just oh. want to say it's wrong. I know it's wrong. <laughs> I got outvoted. I spent the last year and a half making this mistake on purpose Whoa. because Niall is wrong and Kathy is wrong. <laughs> T is wrong and D Scully, they're all wrong. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Data is everywhere in your organization. Even if you don't know it, there are probably places where it doesn't escape the context of the local team or the person who's keeping it or whatever. But ML is a way to instrumentalize that data. It's a way to do something with it. It's a way to surface its actual significance, maybe in, in different places than it would otherwise be. I mean, to, to come back to Todd's point about yeah, airlines yeah. and catering and so on and so forth, Probably there's some kind of rough rule of thumb where the catering department orders approximately statistically about the same amount of vegetarian meals that somebody told them to do in 2011 or something like that. And then maybe they change it every year, but being geared on the data and surfacing that every day and processing that would allow you to make much stronger and more relevant predictions and maybe uh, you have to spend less or maybe you can predict with more accuracy and so on. That's yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and and you know, I guess what I so that maybe we can kind of finish the train of thought. But Todd made a point about like it's yeah, I, what I thought was it seems like tooling can really help like not only harness the value of data, but uh, allow other people to collect, like I'm, I'm thinking of like a feature store, like this whole idea of like, you know, cross-functional data, right? Getting people to share data and you reuse it. But I, I guess what I want to, maybe we can kind of, when Todd comes back on and is that, that interesting relationship between like tooling and also at the same time, like, I guess enabling people or productivity or like, like what Todd was saying, harnessing the power of, of what's there. I feel like it's, uh, there's a, they're, they're very closely related, you know, and I feel like there's, like you mentioned, data is everywhere. I always feel like machine learning is mostly about data, like a lot of the time. And I feel like they're, they're, that's, I just, I think about that, you know, how, why, why that is and how they're related and how that shapes the tooling that we have and the processes around that tooling. So yeah, I'm curious to hear you and Todd's thoughts around that, because it seems like it, it is an important part, right? Like the, so I, I guess a lot of people say it's, it's about the business value or doing what's best for the business, but uh, I guess something under that that's implicit is like productivity and being able to like really extract value from 
something that everyone can do, but only a few people do well because there's like all these complexity, uh, complexities around it. Nice. This has been perfect because I appreciate the ideas around how we need to look at a machine learning as so close to the business side of things, not just like this software side of things that you can, uh, like you said, Todd, like it can be siloed off and just do something. It's And Niall, you mentioned it as what, like an octopus and its tentacles are everywhere. And then the other piece of this is the cultural aspect that doesn't get talked about enough with MLOps and really MLOps is borrowing from DevOps practices heavily. And DevOps is so much based on the cultural side of things. And so I appreciate you bringing both of these pieces up. Now, I do want to just jump into a few things because as David was saying with the staff engineers and thinking broader and being able to then utilize that in the business and and how they're able to utilize data in new ways. Does this also work for smaller startups? And especially Niall, I mean, you're living and breathing this now, right? Uh, you went from gigantic companies where you had these staff engineers and what, uh, over 100,000 people that were working in the companies and now you're uh, leading the ship of a small startup. How do you think about the two roles in that aspect? The two roles of machine learning and staff engineers? The Sorry, it's really one role in two different places. Like the uh, staff engineer or just the machine learning engineer in general being able to be broad. But at a startup, are you still like what are the use cases and the difficulties that you're facing there as opposed to when you're at a Google? Sure. So, I mean, there's a, a lot we could say here. Uh, organizational theory has many, many books and column inches and so on and so forth written about it. But to my mind, there's kind of a, a couple of differences uh, at the start. The first thing I'd say is, um, as my friend Tanya Riley writes in her staff engineering book, uh, which is due to be released soon, uh, she basically talks a lot about how being a staff engineer in a larger organization, you're essentially modeling behavior. So there's a, a human kind of modeling aspect and setting culture and so on, which is, of course, present in a startup because it is present wherever there are human beings. But it's much less a question of scale and much more a question of can we come to a rough agreement about how this should work and then let's go. But the second piece, I suppose, that a staff engineer does is uh, if you're looking around wondering who should do something about this problem, the answer is probably you, because you're the staff engineer. And that's a very similar situation to a startup where, in fact, if this thing isn't getting done and it needs to be done, and usually there's a fairly hard and fast rule that allows you to decide whether or not it should be done, then first person to get there, you know, leaving kind of questions of individual specialization aside, but the first person to get there should should do that. You know, we should pick up after ourselves. So I think yeah, I think there's a there's a connection between that point and the point that David was making earlier, which is um, it is characteristic of the staff engineer um, to have a broader scope to be 
sort of undaunted by organizational boundaries or technical boundaries, which is tough, I think. But so that sort of like, if you're wondering who's supposed to figure out how that division is supposed to work with this division, um, if you're not talking to anybody else who's asking the same question, that's probably you. And that's a really nice fit for machine learning because often it is the case that the best the best data or the best idea or the best collaboration happens at the interstices of these organizations. Like frequently, you know, the data that you need to make the prediction or the data that you need to give the users the value, whatever it is, isn't in one place yet. Uh, because that's expensive and because it requires a lot of privacy oversight and it requires a lot of governance and a lot of technology. Like, so most companies can't say, oh, all the data, they're right here. Here's where they are. We're good. Like, just look at what you want. I mean, that sounds nice. And it's actually like, but it has some downsides, right? Like if all the data are right here, can anybody take them? Are like they exposed? Are they locked down? Is access restricted in appropriate ways? And so both by inertia and by concerns about governance, most organizations have a bunch of different data. We don't talk, everybody's like, assume the perfectly spherical data lake all in one place, but that's not what, like nobody has that. And so that's why these, these uh, inter, in, intra-organizational but inter-division roles like the staff engineer are so important for machine learning because they have to look around and say like, look, your data plus my data that's the magic. So let's figure out a way to make this work. I love that. Yeah. Um, I just, I'll get back. I had a question, but I'll ask you in a second. Go ahead, Dimitrios. <laughs> no, I was going to jump into something that Todd said last time he was on here, uh, unless you remember what you were going to say, David. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something I thought about when you were saying how important it is that, you know, the, the intersection of these different teams is where a lot of the magic happens. Uh, can we talk about that in the context of like, you know, incident response and, and why it's particularly important there that interaction between these teams goes well and, and that they can work together effectively, uh, in your experience, uh, yeah, first off, what does that typically look like at most companies where, how they interact to deal with incidents specifically, um, and, uh, maybe some best practices that you've learned, things that work well and things that don't work. Uh, because I, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, inter interaction is like, should we have a meeting? Like who goes into that meeting? Uh, who gets assigned what? And and who, like, again, like these interesting questions of like, who's who has ownership of something, I think comes really, it comes up when something fails. <laughs> and uh, when only one person maybe knows how to fix it. And, and, and I'm just wondering like, what does this look like at, you know, Nile in the startup context, at a larger context, and what are some things that we can learn from that that uh, someone listening can benefit from? So if you're talking about the question of in, in, in a world gone mad, in a world where kind of no one owns everything or the first person to get to a problem fixes that problem, how do traditional methods of problem resolution work? And the answer is, well, they don't work because the first person who got there fixed the problem or they ask for help or whatever. Like at the at the small scale, there's only so much kind of escalation you can do. So it's much less of a question as it is in larger organizations of the organization needs to find the person with the right knowledge to fix this problem. And the problem is essentially finding that person, which I, I think is a lot of how instant response works in kind of larger companies and folks with a significant production estate. But if you're coming back or if you're um, 
digging deep on questions about organizational uh, scope and communication and so on and saying that actually is it all that realistic to say that everyone needs to know everything and can't you have some partition somewhere and so on yes of course i mean there's this apocryphal story uh, which i choose to believe is true but uh, anyway of of jeff bezos apparently getting annoyed at some relatively early amazon meeting where lots of folks are kind of standing up managers and PMs saying we have to communicate more we have to send memos to each other or whatever and Jeff says no this is stupid you should be finding out ways that you don't have to talk to each other because that will mean you can go faster within in your local scope and this is the two pizza team and the there shall be nothing except an RPC layer team and so on all of which are fantastic kind of rules of thumb for running organizations with kind of well-known characteristics I suppose uh so I would say that my experience suggests that, yes, you do need to put some partitions in once you go past a certain scale or once you have PII concerns or regulatory concerns of various kinds. There are all kinds of reasons to, to uh, block various kinds of communication flow or having to know stuff. But what I see in mainstream business culture is that we still assume we have way fewer reasons to talk to each other than we actually do. And we're I, at least in the in the stuff we have written, we're trying to get people to realize that actually ML and liberalizing the value of data should cause you to think again about that question. And I think, yeah, I think all of that is true. And in the context of machine learning, like we wrote this whole chapter on incident response in in the book, and it was a fun chapter to write um, because it like, you know, like for people who do production engineering, like thinking about stuff breaking, like that's that's like that's the fun stuff. Like they're stories, they're fun to read, but they're actually interesting. Uh, you learn a ton. One of the. Oh, you do. Right. And all of those were inspired by real like none of them is an actual exact outage that happened somewhere. But all of them are inspired by real outages that some of us have seen. Um, but I think the challenge with machine learning, which is I think this is sometimes true in other parts of the business, but it's always true in machine learning is there is no works or doesn't work. I mean, if you think about what it is to make a model, you're like, we're making a model. And it's better than not having a model. You're like, but is it right? And you're like, well, that's not a super well-defined question. Is it right? I mean, it's pretty good for lots of stuff sometimes. You're like, okay. But so that's fine when you're thinking about model development and you're thinking about like building this into your organization or your application. But now when you come to do reliability engineering or production engineering, you're doing ML ops and you're like, the model's less good than it used to be. Is that okay? I don't know. Less good for whom? Under what circumstances? And this makes the incident response super hard, I think. And it's super interesting because you're like, do we? Because sometimes you just have an outage. You're like, oh, we loaded the model into serving and all of the serving layer crashed. Okay, well, that's an outage. Like, that's fine. We don't have a model. But like a lot of the times, like we have a new model. And in some ways, we think it might be somewhat less good for certain kinds of people than the old model was. Okay, is that an outage? I don't know. It sounds kind of like an outage, right? How are you going to know when it's done? And so anyway, like David, going back to your point, like that creates these communication, you know, part of the point that Niall was talking about is now you need to communicate with the people building the model 
with the people who are evaluating the quality of the model, with all of the people who produce all of the data that goes into that model, because like these data in the ways that they're combined and the way that they're trained into this model, like maybe they were joined wrong. Maybe somebody like hasn't produced new data for six weeks and that's why this model is bad. And you don't know that by the time it gets to serving because you just have a model that says, you know, what it says. So I think that's what's that's what makes the ML incident response way trickier and much more fun. Yeah, that, that fun part sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's stressful, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to fix something and no one uh, no one really understands why something is gone. But I think that's uh, it, something that I, I, I thought about is if that if those are the type of questions that you're asking that I would dig into that. Why do you not know who is responsible for that or or why don't we have a system in place to you know frame the right questions? It almost seems like framing the questions is almost the, the, the important part. And that seems related to team structure and goals and what your priorities priorities are and, and things of that nature. You should be aware that Todd uses the word fun in the context of someone who has been an SRE for well over a decade and therefore their adrenaline glands are close to useless. <laughs> no, but I do think like one of the things I appreciate about uh, my current employer is I've never been on call and felt alone, like abandoned. And I think that's what gives the stress. If you are in it and you have people to help you with it and you are kind of lost, but you know what to help, how to ask for help, it's not so bad. You're like, yes, this is bad, but we're in this together. We're going to figure it out. I think for most of the people I talk to, they're like they're at an organization that either because of its size or its maturity or its bad culture, it's just like you're on call and forget it, man. It's just you Good luck. You know, holding the hordes off. And you're like, dude, I don't, like, I just got here. I can barely spell LS. What is happening in this conversation? Right. And so, in those cases, like, if you don't know where the dashboard is and you don't know what the model's supposed to do and you don't understand how quality is being evaluated and you didn't understand the data joining system that went into it, it's time to, like, get some help. And that should be fine. And so, um, so yeah. one thing that I'm wondering, Todd. Uh, oh, my bad, Niall. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you haven't lost me. I'm still here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but Todd, I mean, um, as someone who had to write your title uh, a few times in the, the last time that you were on here and then when you were in the apply conference, it's a mouthful. Do you think that your or we as a ML ops or ML community are going to see something like the MRE actually take off? Yeah. So honestly, I think maybe I don't understand. You know, this is weird having worked at Google for like 13 years, but I will just say like, I don't understand the way big corporate tech deals with job titles and professionalism. Like, I just don't understand how it works or why it works the way. And I know this is like a little bit ridiculous thing. Like I'm a senior director at a giant tech corp and I'm just asserting, I don't understand why or why we do that or how that works. So I don't know. Like what I know is that as hiring manager, like I know the kind of skills I evaluate for, but I also, I do appreciate that there is this, um, there is this like, social professional wave that we all are creating and participating in. And I know it matters because we saw it in SRE, like before we had SRE, um, before like, you know, Google popularized the term and other people adopted it. And we started collectively thinking about what site reliability engineering would be versus 
systems administration versus some other kind of like, you know, versus production engineering or DevOps. Like, so before we had that, it was harder to communicate what skills we were looking for. So I do think we're going to get to something that's a little bit closer to that. But what I wonder, I would flip it on you, Demetrius, and say like, well, why do we think that that won't be all of the production engineer? Like, mm. what is the thing looking out 10 or 15 years? What is, what is the set of, because like, you don't go back, you know, you don't say like, do you think we're going to like have software skills required to work on computers? Like, what do you think about that? I'm like, yes, I think we are. And I think we're going to have some machine learning skills required to work on computers in the future. Now we're going to have five to 15 years of that transition, but I don't see a world 15 years from now where people are using computers and the computers aren't configuring themselves and the the, the systems that we deploy aren't fundamentally and inextricably dependent upon machine learning. Like I just, that just doesn't seem possible to me. In which case, why do you like, you're just like inventing a new word for the thing that everyone is. So maybe the answer is like, no, you don't get like ML reliability, you don't get ML reliability engineers. You just have reliability engineers who have to know ML. So yeah, now what do you think? So Todd has moved to occupy the aspirational high ground. So I'll come in with a little bit of low ground here and I'll say that to the extent that SRE has obtained a good reputation uh, in, the, uh, in the industry as a whole, people are going to want to bit of that in their org. So somebody comes up to them and says, oh, you can have an SRE except for this ML thing and SREs are really good. Didn't you hear that? Oh yes, I heard that. Yes, we better hire an ML or E or equivalent. So like there's just kind of linguistic degradation overall as people attempt to get the the good things for themselves. So um, that would be my, my estimation what's gonna happen. So I I love this, uh, especially because it does feel like, yes, the and this is something that, Todd, you've talked about a few times, and I really appreciate the idea of how the hard problems aren't specific machine learning problems, right? And it's like distributed systems problems and distributed computing and that kind of thing. And then this vision that you have of, the next wave is going to be everything will be touched with machine learning. So it's not going to be a thing like machine learning won't be such a it, it won't be as hypey as it is now. And it'll just be taken for granted. And potentially what we call software in the future will have machine learning inside of that. Just it's assumed that machine learning is part of software. So the one thing that I want to touch on that is. Uh, something you mentioned last time you were on the podcast, Todd, around trustworthiness being a real barrier to implement machine learning. And over the span of writing the book, I know that you all touched on ethics and trustworthiness and things like that. And I'm really wondering, like, how has like how have things changed, if at all, your viewpoint on the trustworthiness of not only the data, but like if someone wants to do machine learning, that is a big risk for the company. And so they have to trust that this initiative that they're going to embark on is going to work. Yeah. I, so I think um, we take these points super seriously. And I think it's some of the most interesting macro, structural, organizational, societal questions that we have. 
I think there's some narrow technical answers about explainability and about certain kinds of governance. And I think those are important answers. Um, but I think that, you know, so like just to say, like, explainability is a real thing. Like many models have certain explainability features. Um, I think that the people doing work in explainability are doing important work. However, I also think it's the case that they're they do not see the gap between the answers they give and what societies want. Uh, and so what I think is pretty hopeful is, you know, if we go back, I am not a policy expert and like my company will kill me if I say important things about like big policy. But I will say like when you look at data protection rules uh, in the European Union going back, you know, five, six, seven years, um, those were super bumpy, super problematic. They looked almost impossible. But in the end, I think a lot of people look at those and say, like, well, wait, those are not those are actually not as a, as a person, maybe not as a tech company, but as a person, I'm like, those are not too bad. Wait, you're saying I have certain rights to control of my data. I have rights to know when you're getting my data. I can make you get rid of it and I can know what you're doing with it. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Right. So something that went from unfathomable to, you know, tech in the like early 2000s to like seeming pretty reasonable to those of us here in 2022. I think we're also starting to see some of those things for artificial intelligence. And I think that's good. Like as a as a technologist, I'm like, I should just get to do whatever I want to. But as a citizen of like a couple different places, I'm like, no, I want like I want societies to have a deep set of trust and investment in these technologies because they're good, because they matter. And so if we're going to use these to write loans, we should probably not be racist about it, for example. Like if we're going to use these to drive cars, we should not run into people and we should know under what conditions we're better or worse than human drivers. Um, but now, like you spent a lot more time in that uh, section of the book than I did. What are your thoughts on, you know, this general question about like the risks of AI and organizations and like where we're going to go in the next few years? Yeah, I suppose uh, I'd, I'd start off by saying that the the chapter in the book that we have about this is more or less geared to organizations that aren't maybe doing a lot or that much or they're take they're stepping you know putting their first toe in the water etc so it's more or less a guideline to if you aren't doing anything at all please consider doing the following things and they are reasonably sensible things like maybe you should care about who has access to your data and here's a technique for making sure you don't disadvantage this subgroup of a larger set as opposed to this other subgroup yada 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 basically just what would happen if you took this seriously kind of questions, right? But there's a huge, huge amount to talk about here with respect to the to the larger question, of course. I think I'll say, I mean, I have no crystal ball here whatsoever, but I, I think what I'll say is I see this kind of regionalizing in the world. I see, like, in, in the writing of this book, the, the Chinese um, government has their statement about how AI should be used inside companies and the European Union has not just the GDPR, but also their guidelines uh, about how it should be used, etc. I see more regulation kind of happening and I see the conflict, if that's the right word, between public policy and 
machine learning generally, and I suppose technical development generally, uh, as as being very definitely a thing which is going to keep happening for years and years yet. And that gap between the conventional kind of public understanding of of things, particularly in, in government and politicians who often have this famous background in, you know, ph- philosophy, politics and economics, etc., uh, those decision makers aren't equipped with the nuance to understand when somebody says this ML stuff is magic pixie dust and pixie dust and you can sprinkle it and everything and it just makes everything better. And also it makes everything infinitely terrible. Like those two messages are clearly discernible in public kind of discussions about this thing. And my concern is that we will regionalize just as a factor of our cultural inertia and the direction we're going in in the various different continents, right? And we won't ever close that gap between the understanding of data and science and so on and so forth and key decision makers. And I, I think that that is a, a gap I, go, I grow increasingly concerned about. That's, I'm, it's inter- oh, sorry, go ahead, Todd. Sorry. It's just interesting you say that, Niall, because... Like, I I see what you're talking about, but in some ways I perceive the gap between technologists and uh, policy as as less than it was during the early days of data regulation. Like during the early days of data regulation, it felt like people were like dug in fighting tooth and nail. And what I see on the AI stuff is I see a lot more constructive engagement. I see people saying like, hold on, I get it. Like, I totally understand why you want to do some of these things. Can we talk about the details a little bit more? So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like, maybe that'll blow up in the same way, but at least in the US tech companies and the proposed European uh, oversight for AI, I'm seeing a lot more constructive, like, let's try to understand what you're trying to accomplish. And why don't you try to understand what constraints we have and how flexible we can be. And maybe we can work something out, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't think you're wrong, but I, I do think that the separation is between the political layer and decision-making and not necessarily the administrative layer. So I see the administrative layers of government staffing up with AI regulation units and people whose job it is to know all about this stuff and there will be local competence. Is the political layer connected to that in the way it needs to be? Like not in all regions in like all of the time, shall we say. You guys bring up some really interesting points and, and something that I thought about or question I asked myself is how do we prepare the next generation of practitioners to not have this as like an afterthought? I feel like with 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 tech, that's what it's always felt like. Uh, this is just something you got to think about after the fact. But the real focus is on the tech and the cool stuff. Do you feel like it, it may be in typical computer science uh, you know, programs, there needs to be a class on like the philosophy of technology, the philosophy of AI. I sometimes feel like that could help, that couldn't help, but it also feels related to like maybe something, maybe we could learn from the past. Like in the past, you know, the public had a certain perception towards a piece of technology and there was a role of government and, 
in, in shaping that or the technologists also shaping that, it feels like they're all related, like the perception of things, uh, our competence is also related to what practitioners think about it. Do they value thinking about these things? At, at the, right now, it feels like they don't. It's an afterthought. Only when they're in trouble or when they're you know under pressure does it become really relevant. Um, so, yeah, I, I just feel I don't know if that's like the solution, you know, because, you know, we talked about philosophy earlier. That does help you think more broadly, think cogently about things. How can we do that in this space when, uh, you know, engineers just like to focus on what like they, they like to focus on? You know, it's very hard to kind of, it's like herding cats. How do you do that? How do we bridge that gap? Well, I, I, I mean, I, so I do think I have a thought here and maybe you do too, Niall. Like, I, I think there ha, there is a very, very long tradition of engineers being responsible for the uses of their creation. Um, and this goes back generations and generations. And like, if we think about relatively recent examples, like no one thinks the engineers at Volkswagen and Audi are like not culpable for the cheating of the emissions and the amount of pollution that they caused, in particular in Europe, by programming the computers to recognize when they were being tested for emissions at the emissions testing places using the GPS and the specific, right? Like, we know that. And as engineers, we say, like, oh, yeah, you knew what you were doing and you knew you were <laughs> responsible for this. No, I know, like, one of the things that happens with some of these creations is the consequences are a little bit distant. So if I have a model that learns from biased humans and then the model is biased is that my fault or humanity's fault right and what i think what i'm starting to see is like a lot of organizations are saying like well we'll give you the tools to detect when you've reproduced bias and then then it is your fault because now you can detect like did you train a sexist model if you trained a sexist model and we gave you the tools to detect that it was sexist and you launched it anyway that you launched a sexist model. And so anyway, in the book, one of the things we did that I'm super appreciative of is we have this whole section on privacy and ethics, like an entire chapter written by an independent expert in that, which is fantastic. But we incorporated those concerns into every single other chapter because you don't, you don't get to like isolate that. And to, to your point, David, it's not just a separate class. It has to be in everything you do. Sorry, Niall, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I suppose I'd say two things. The first one is, like, as you say, there's a long tradition of scientists kind of struggling with the consequences of their actions. And it's from everything from Oppenheimer and the yeah. atomic bomb uh, all the way through to like a model that somebody pushed yesterday, uh, possibly with slightly different consequences or scale consequences. But the, the thing I'd say is, Coming back to your suggestion, um, as the possessor of a humanities and a computer science degree or whatever, I would same, same. I would like to say yes, sure. We could we should expose to people to these complicated ideas of of what the good means and how it should be defined and so on and so forth. But actually, is that going to be a necessary kind of improvement, like a monotonic improvement in what we see today? I'm not convinced of that. I think the thing that matters is people see advantage in doing the shitty thing, right? And they do that because there is some advantage to it. How can we make that not be an advantage? Well, today, the answer to that is regulation or jail or fining or any one of a series of kind of activities like that, shall we say, incentives like that. 
I think we can get a certain degree by relying on character and culture. And those are both very strong forces, you know, different scopes, etc. But ultimately, if we're trying to say, people, you should not use this thing in this way, someone else is going to have to say that with a loud voice. Yes. So good. Well said. So uh, I could sit here talking to you guys for another couple hours. Sadly, you are very important people and you also have lives to lead. (laughs) And we have got to cut it. But this has been super, super cool. I highly encourage anyone out there, if you have not read the book, go out and get it. You can go on to O'Reilly right now and check it out. And the final push, I think, is for what? When's it going to come out officially? Oh, it should be out electronically before you can edit this. They're talking about pushing it later this week or early next week. Perfect. So, All right. Yeah, so, so by the time by the you time, hear this. But unless you guys are like editing this in the background and pushing it later today, <laughs> by the time people read this, they can get the book uh, in print within a week or two and like certainly electronically. Incredible. And we're planning on doing a reading club in the MLOps community. So if you go to reading group, Go and check that out, and we'll all be reading it together. Uh, And then Todd and Niall are both in the community, and we're so thankful to have you guys in there. It's been super cool. So if you have questions for them, just hit them up in Slack. Uh, Not too many questions, because like I said, they got got things to do also. But the the last things I was going to ask you guys are... um, Best ways to get a hold of you? Is it just Slack? Do you prefer Twitter, LinkedIn? What's? I hate people. I don't like talking <laughs> to people. Oh. Like, I don't know. Like, uh, Niall and I are both on Twitter, both on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn has increasingly had, I think because of Chip's book, uh, Chip Grin's book, which is fantastic. You should get her on if you haven't already. But like I've I've seen an increasing in some of the work you've been doing, Demetrius, over there. Like I've seen an increasing amount of ML ops content on LinkedIn that's been really useful. So I think that's a nice focused way. Um, there's some on Twitter, but it's been a little bit more focused on LinkedIn, I think. Excellent. I think, I think I'd say if you come to me on LinkedIn, you will contend with the number of people who want to hire me. If you come to me on Twitter, you'll contend with the number of people who want to be sarcastic at me. If you come to <laughs> me on Slack, that's probably faster, but, you know, you'll there's Contend with your coworkers. That's exactly. Who will have to contend exactly. with Well, fellas, this was awesome. Thanks again for doing this. And we will hopefully have you back on here sooner than another year because this is just super cool to talk to you all. Yeah. yeah. But we're not writing any more books. Forget it. (laughs) Books do not write themselves. (laughs) They do not. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. All right. Thanks so much.